Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I often am, by my good friend and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how's it going? Well, we just got our first snow here uh, in New Jersey, John. So a little miserable, a little icy, a little slushy, but, you know, we're getting through it. Yeah, minus five this morning in London, which was not pleasant, I can say. But uh, I believe that the temperature is changing soon. So we're on the sunny uplands towards nicer weather and I can't wait for it to come. But another thing I can't wait for is for people to listen to our guest today, who is Stuart Reid, a freelance set piece analyst. Mike, you've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? Well, I mean, the first thing that always pops into my head when we think set pieces is uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold's quick corner taken against Barcelona in the 2019 uh, Champions League semifinals. But as a Liverpool supporter, naturally that will come to the top of my head. But listening to Stuart, I think that what a set piece consultant does, you know, how much time he has with managers and players and kind of what what needs to be drawn up, what's important in a set piece, right? There's a lot of great things that Stuart talks about as a freelance set piece analyst and specialist. Yes. And as always, the best thing for us to do is to jump over and let our guests speak for themselves. So the next time you hear me speaking, I will be speaking to Stuart Reid, who is a freelance set-piece analyst. Stuart, it's great to have you on today. You're someone who's clearly very excited about set-pieces. Now, I don't think that's necessarily unusual amongst people who work in the football industry. I think a lot of fans, I think, might find it hard to get enthused about set pieces. So to kick things off, why don't you tell our listeners about why they should be so excited about set pieces? A hard question. And most people in football also don't like set pieces. (laughs) So the fans are in the majority aligned with those inside the game as well. Um, But it's an area in which a lot of sort of strategy happens and set pieces are ultimately important like there's a huge area of the game like depending on the league between 20 and 30 percent of all goals scored are set pieces so purely just on that basis alone it's an important aspect of the the game yeah and I think that at least anecdotally it feels as though because more thought is going into them from that purely efficient point of view um that they are a a really good way of generating goal scoring upside um there's much more effort being put into them by 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 various coaches. And as a result of that, I think they're starting to be become a lot more interesting as well in, in, in their own right. So um, I'm good friends with the set-piece coach at Brentford. Before I met him, I was always just a bit like, yeah, well, you know, set-pieces, whatever. I just I sort of tune out until they're over and, and, <laughs> and see what's going to happen. But since since talking to him and seeing some of the things that they're doing, um, I think there's there's a sense in which set-pieces are becoming much more interesting as a, as, a, as at least conceptually right finding different ways of being able to cause problems um, to to oppositions right yeah absolutely yeah like Brentford are obviously sort of like the poster boys for for a lot of things but set pieces is is one of them it runs through the entire club's DNA from top to bottom that is part of everything that they're trying to do they see it as obviously a, a massive part of their structure and how they move up the sort of echelons as as sort of different levels of club um and yeah they're they're incredibly good at it in every single uh, aspect of it let's cover your background a little bit before we get going so you've had a pretty fun route into the football industry um and i think it's interesting because you specialize pretty much from the off if I'm, I'm, i'm right in saying so tell a little tell us a little bit about how you made your route into the professional game yeah so Prior to working in football, I, I used to work in a school uh, doing IT, uh, which I did for a sort of decade before realising I absolutely hate this <laughs> and really want to do something I love. Um, football was something I loved, so I was just like, I'm 
going to try and get a job in football, um, which turns out is pretty hard. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I spent a few years sort of writing blogs, doing the, the sort of various aspects of football, um, sort of scout reports, uh, tactical analysis, uh, stuff like that, just to see where I wanted to put my focus. Um, and then I remember reading an article about set pieces and how they were so undervalued um, and everything just sort of clicked in my brain. I'd always like really liked a good set piece routine. Um, and so, yeah, decided that was going to be my focus. Um, so I started f writing blogs focused entirely around set pieces. Um, when was this? What? So that would have been 2017, I think. Yeah. So still very much in the infancy phase of, of set piece specialism. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. and presumably that that made your life a lot easier just having that niche to work. Exactly. In. Like, yeah. I'd, partly what inspired me to to go down this path was when I searched to learn more about set pieces. There was literally nothing. Um, there is very, very few articles out there. Um, so I decided to try and change that. Um, and then obviously, because there was very few people out there writing about set pieces, I was literally the only one, um, which made things, yeah, much easier to, to sort of get that get that route into the game. Yeah, and you got that route into the game through Leighton Orient at first and then yeah. Millwall, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, those, those two were unpaid internships. Um, yeah, just to sort of get my foot in the door, work out what clubs want to see in their reports and get that, that sort of uh, experience um, before moving into those those sort of more paid roles. Hmm. I'm guessing that having worked for a few clubs now, different clubs have different expectations of what they're going to get when it comes to um, f filling out those reports. How much have you learned in your in your time? I mean, we're coming up to it's well over five years now. How much have you learned just in terms of the presentation side of things when you're working with yeah, clubs? Yeah, huge amounts. Look at, looking back at it, I've kept every single one of my reports and looking back at those sort of first reports for Leonor and Mill to the stuff that's in my reports now is crazily different, crazy. Um, but yeah, in terms of what I provide each club that that differs very slightly into terms of what each club wants to see in their reports. Mm. Um, some clubs want to see X, other clubs don't care about X and want Y instead. So sure. um, all tailored to each club's needs. And you worked for a multi-club group as well, Platek. Um, that, that was, I think, three different clubs involved in that. Was that a good experience for you in terms of like the learning side of things, having to having to work for one company but have three different clubs that you were working with at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. Like what I do provides value to clubs, but if I'm providing to sort of value to three different clubs all under the same umbrella, then that's obviously hugely beneficial to the group. Um, and then, yeah, it's it's funny as sort of each league and country has its own sort of set piece culture, which have to learn as well. Like scoring a corner goal in Denmark is very different to scoring a corner goal in Portugal. Like it's, yeah, there's a lot to, to learn in each different country and culture that, um, that needs to happen before hmm. the coaches will listen. <laughs> Presumably the leagues are very different as well, even within countries, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's often a huge amount of difference between, how teams create chances, obviously technical quality, um, even, even sort of defensive setups change quite a lot, which naturally sort of influences how goals mm. are scored and mm -hmm. stopped, etc. Hmm. Um, so now you're working as a, as a freelance consultant, essentially. Um, and I, I find that quite interesting. Um, You've obviously done some of your coaching badges, but I'm guessing most of your work is is theoretical. So you're, I guess, working with coaching staff on the on the on the sort of more theoretical aspects of, of set piece uh, approaches. How does how does that impact your work? Do you think that you're doing most of things sort of not at the training ground? Yeah, I th I think it has less an less of an impact um, than if I was actually there because ultimately all my work is, as you said, theoretical. So I'm. I don't sort of have the the final say almost in, in what happens. I sort of plead my case each week to coaches and say, I think we should do this. Um, whereas if I was on the training ground, it's likely that I would have like the the, the final say in what, what that strategy is. 
Um, but ultimately, I I do like the sort of analysis side of it, um, the, the more theoretical side. I, that, that's where I'm really strong. Hmm. Yeah. How does it? How does that work then? So you you'll have meetings presumably with the coaching staff who are involved in in the trainings. Um, do you have much of a say in how that is the, the theoretical is going to be translated into the practical, or do you basically leave that up to the coaching staff? Yeah, I usually leave that up to coaching staff. We usually have like a Zoom meeting, um, sort of once a week, uh, just to go through like the sort of report and the, the sort of finer details and show a bit of videos as well as the sort of um, break down and set pieces in the last game to evaluate sort of what went well, what didn't, etc. Um, so yeah, it's con- constant communication is good to have that sort of like feedback loop, um, especially since I'm not there as well. So I can't see how the like routines and stuff went in training. Um, so it's always good to have that that feedback loop of our oh, players didn't didn't really like that or delivery wasn't good enough um, or or the opposite players really like this we want to do more variations of this um, so yeah very important to have the, that sort of communication. Hmm. Do you ever have the feeling that you'd like to work as a full time set piece coach for a club? I would love to do that at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is something that that was always the goal. Um, but as time's gone on, it's sort of like changed changed a little bit as sort of like the pandemic happened and clubs were a bit more switched on to having someone remotely. Um, that that caused like a little shift in in what I was doing. But I, I would absolutely love to do that at some point. You mentioned uh, in the lift when we were coming up to to record this that you're at a point of the season where it's getting quite busy for you, um, that a lot of clubs are, are at that point of their season where they're realising where some of their problems might lie and uh, an easy place, I guess, to point out problems is is, is in set pieces. So that's a bit, it's a busy time for you right now, is it? Yeah, yeah, cra- crazy at the moment. Yeah, you're at that point where clubs are either battling relegation and think that an increase in set pieces could get them out of the trouble they're in or cusp of playoffs and looking for any gain to cement themselves in in top six or yeah various different leagues all clubs are are now evaluating and finding out that we need help Mm. and do you do much sort of one-off or you know short-term work with with clubs will they will will they just get you to do a sort of an audit of what they're doing in terms of set pieces and offer some suggestions for how they could improve that yeah, that has happened before, um, but yeah, most mostly I, I find the gains are the, the constant um, week in week out stuff. That's that's where um, the bigger the biggest gain lies for sure. Hmm. So let's talk about set pieces. Um, what do you count as your remit for a set piece? I guess obviously corners, free kicks. Were you including throw ins and goal kicks in that? It varies from team to team. Most of the teams I work with don't have too much of an interest in throw-ins or goal kicks. Um, but personally, I, I would include them. There's, I, I think we're going to see a lot more um, work around throws, uh, goal kicks, uh, and, and kickoffs as well in the in the near future. There was, of course, that was it Bournemouth versus Fulham. I think it was routine from a few years ago that. Subsequently, lots of other teams then all sort of copied and it all sort of like rolled into one and uh, rolled across the world. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think that's any sort of restart is basically going to have increased scrutiny in the next yeah. few few years for sure. Yeah, that's interesting because I guess it's the restart element that means that there's a level of predictability to it, right? So you you can put the time and effort in and you know that there'll be gains over the long term. Exactly, yeah. yeah it's, it's the one... Like any time where the game basically stops still is a chance to sort of analyse opponent behaviour and strategy mm. and from that build your own sort of strategy around that. Yeah, I mean, throw-ins have been, I suppose, a big topic of conversation in recent seasons. Um, Thomas Gronemark has been doing a lot of work with various clubs on that. But I think one of the things, a lot of that stuff, I think, is just how do you reset the play when you're, when you're throwing the ball in um, wherever you are on the, on the sideline. But one of the things we are seeing more now is long throws as a, as a viable alternative to a corner, right? And, and again, Brentford using um, Matthias Jensen as a, as a long thrower and actually getting a lot of upside from that. I'm pretty sure that they include those long throws as, as you know, set piece 
um, within their their tally of set piece goals. So a really important way of them once they get to a certain height on the pitch, they're going to they're going to try and find those those marginal gains. Are you are you finding that's a general trajectory across the whole of world football? Yeah, I think I, th- I think so. Yeah, it's, you don't even need that much of a long throw, um, especially when you're sort of like near the, the sort of penalty area, and there's a lot. A lot you can do around throw-ins to, to create chances to maybe not even sort of make a long throw, but just a sort of quick combination to quickly cross the ball into mm-hmm. into the area after a, a throw. Um, so yeah, it's an area game that's still ripe for uh, mm-hmm. exploitation. And then in terms of goal kicks, I think the, the big thing that we've started seeing more recently is... As defenders taking the goal kick to the the goalkeeper, um, things like that happening. There's presumably a lot more theory out there now about about what you can achieve from from a goal kick than. And obviously, the, the the rule change around the penalty area um, usage during goal kicks as well. Are you, are you keeping up with a lot of, of that side of things as well? I I haven't personally, but I know it's a, it's going to be a big area um, in terms of like creating patterns of play and and stuff like that. Um, that that that's going to be big in the future for sure. Yeah, yeah, especially I guess with with build up patterns. Uh, again, if you if you as you said before, if you know the structure that you can restart play with, you can get all of those marginal gains, and it's going to make it easier for you to move the ball down the field. So yeah, it's going to be fun seeing how how those uh, how th- those things go. Um, in terms of the divisions of your labour, what would you say is the biggest focus um, of, of your analysis? Um, I'm guessing corners and, and free kicks probably take the bulk of it. Um, but but how would you divvy it up as percentages? What do you say the, the percentage focus is for your work? Yeah, uh, so yeah, for most of the teams I work with, I only do corners and free kicks. Um, I definitely put more emphasis on the corners um, just because it's... It's more defined. Um, like a corner can only be taken one or two places, left, left and right. Um, whereas a free kick, you've got huge areas of the pitch where free kicks can can be taken, and a difference of five yards of where a free kick is taken could completely change how your opponent sets up to defend. Um, so trying to plan for all those sort of eventualities is really hard ultimately um so i definitely spend more time on corners um i prefer to spend more time on the offensive side um as again that it doesn't really change too much how the opponent defends from from game to game uh, whereas they could on the defensive side they could have been chipping it to the back post all season and then you against you they hit the front post um which completely screw you up um so you can only on the offensive side sorry the defensive side you can only really plan for what the opponent's done um so far so they could spring something new on you um whereas they're unlikely unless they've been having a lot of sort of defensive issues they're unlikely to change their their defensive setup um and that's that's where the the I fight I think personally anyway the, the sort of biggest gain is um, trying to score those goals. Yeah. How much would you say? I mean, coming back to the free kick thing, how much would you say VAR has changed the dangerousness the dangerousness of a free kick? Is that <laughs> is because it seems to me that from certain situations you're always going to be in in, in the, with the threat of being caught offside, and and there's no leeway for it now. Yeah, yeah, and the same with blocking and st- stuff like that as well. Um, and again, that's something that varies league to league a lot as well. Um, in Portugal, VAR is brutal. Um, like you can score, and they'll be like, "Oh no, he had his like hand on his shoulder." Whereas in in sort of like in Denmark, you can commit full blown assault and get away with it, <laughs> and like anything goes basically. Um, and in the championship, they don't even have the yeah, right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No, that's um, interesting. So, so yeah, the, the offsides, the blocking. So it has has changed quite a lot, and it is something you definitely have to be uh, have have like an eye on when when sort of creating my routines and coming up with the ideas, etc. So you'd expect to score m- m- much more goals through corners than you would through free kicks. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. 
Let's talk a little bit about your process running up to a game then. So say you're working for a club and they've got a game coming up, they want you to run the set piece analysis for. What does your process look like? So in terms of time, I would um, usually submit the, submit the report on like Monday or Tuesday if, if the game's at a weekend. Um, Wednesday or Thursday, sit down with the coaching staff and talk through it and come up with the, the sort of strategy. Um, How long does that meeting last, is it? Uh, it's usually about half hour, 45 minutes. Um, yeah, we go through the previous games, sort of set pieces as well, um, to evaluate what went wrong and what went right. Um, and obviously, yeah, that, that debrief depends on how much went well, how much <laughs> how much didn't. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, that that's the sort of weekly schedule. Um, in terms of my sort of own personal process, always start off sort of looking at their the sort of their defensive side their defensive setup from corners how many zonal markers they have where do they position them um who is it um and i sort of look at the the visualizations of where they win the ball who's winning the ball where um is there an area of the pitch in which they they're conceding ch regular chances from uh, then i'll I'll watch sort of 150, 200 corners of them defending um, just to try and track things that, that the data doesn't pick up, like player behavior. If make a run out short, who goes with him and s stuff like that, just to try and build a picture of what we can hit, where, um, who is there a player we can manipulate? Is there a player who we should target? Um, and then, yeah, fr from that, just sort of build out, like basically the, the reports basically build out to the final idea anyway. Like uh, they've conceded a lot of the near corner of the six yard area. The zonal marker in this area is weak in the air while well, we're going to block him, playing in outswinger to that area. Um, and then, yeah, basically flows. You say you watch 150 corners for each team. How much change do you see happening in that in that spread generally? Is it generally the case that defensively a team is going to roughly do the same thing and, and you can pick up stuff? Or do you ever see like big changes being made? Defensively, things are really consistent most of the time. Um, there's obviously slight tweaks from game to game as like players might miss out from injury or stuff like that that, that may cause like a little... Um, change in how they sort of set up um, but ultimately it, it very rarely changes unless either A the coaching staff have changed um, B their defence just isn't working out and they're conceding boatloads of goals um, or chances um, so, so yeah but other than that mostly stays pretty consistent from, from game to game hmm. Obviously, when it comes to set pieces, you don't know how many you're going to get in a game. So from an attacking point of view, that does pose a problem because you can't say for this free kick or corner, we're going to do this and et cetera, et cetera. Um, how do you work that? Do you have three or four quote unquote straight off the training ground routines, like the, the clever routines that, that we see teams doing, which you scatter throughout more standard set plays? Is that, is that how it will work? So yeah, yeah, I usually provide two to three corner routines um, and similar for three kicks per sort of opponent. Um, and then normally have the sort of general set piece strategy alongside that. Um, but yeah, it's hugely frustrating when you, you spend like day on a full day on a report and think you've got some really clever routines and then look forward to seeing them on match day and you, know, you get one corner and yeah that's always a, a kick but uh, it does happen <laughs> well you run a routine presumably and it doesn't go well and you can't really use it again because you've used it up yeah exactly yeah where the execution's just very slightly off yeah yeah um we had a questions around communications around set pieces i guess this is maybe more coaching staff oriented um and again spoken about the, the way that you communicate on the pitch around set pieces with various set piece coaches in in football and um it seems to be a really fascinating aspect of 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 the of the of the set piece coaching um 
uh, prospect that you have to get your team all on the same sheet to know what's what's happening. So we had a question from James who said, how do teams whilst in-game decide what set-piece routine to do? Is it game state based or is it the set-piece taker who di di dictates this? Now, presumably, a lot of the answers you're going to give me today are going to be like, it depends on the, the team, <laughs> but what, what are the general principles of communication of set-piece ideas? Yeah, so it does depend on the team. Uh, <laughs> Some is some teams will dictate it by the coach on on the touchline or assistant um, who will say do would do this do this routine. Um, mostly though, I would say is set piece taker um, dictating it, uh, deciding just yeah the the state of the game, um, the flow of the game, what feels right to them in that sort of current moment um, to to choose which sort of yeah routine to to run. And presumably they have a series of verbal and non-verbal communications for that. So one of the things that people often talk about is hands in the air. Yeah. How do those tells usually work? And is it part of your job to analyze that for oppositions as well and try and read them? I, sometimes it's very obvious. I don't spend a lot of time doing that because they could easily just switch it up. Yeah. For, um, but yeah, ha hands in the air is often a, a common one. Um, what are they usually indicating with that? Where yeah, on so the pitch it's usually, usually it? where the ball's going. So you could have one hand up means ball's going to the back post, two hands up means ball's going to the front post or any, any other combination or signal. Um, I've, I've seen all sorts. I've seen like taps of foot on the ball and kicks on the corner flag and all, all sorts um but yeah it's not not something i usually spend a lot of time uh trying to analyze yeah and i guess again it depends on 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 different teams i believe that brentford have a very complicated system of being able to communicate and uh, they use non-verbal communications and and the complexity of their plays i think is testament to how how complex their communication is um do you think that's a, an area where a lot of teams can get upside in terms of being being more dangerous yeah for sure yeah um in in terms of analyzing the signals as well like t time constraints play it play a part like you can only go so deep you only got so much time like from from sort of game to game especially in some leagues where it's like weekend game midweek game which is always uh brutal um so yeah that that definitely plays a part coming back to your prep for uh, running through a week towards a, a game where you're doing the analysis for how much freedom do you get in your analysis so uh, again this is going to be it depends on the club but some clubs presumably say we want to do this give us a sort of these are the parameters within which we, we want you to operate do you get any clubs who give you a bit more of a carte blanche for just redeveloping re things as, as you're going or saying this is what we should do go and do it yeah, um, again, yeah. As you said, it sort of varies club to club. Um, some clubs uh, said we want weird, wacky. We want cra crazy. We want, we don't mind outside the box. Um, whereas other clubs I've worked with, you know, it's going to be much more um, by the book, almost, almost in terms of the suggestions. I know if I suggest something absolutely crazy. It's not going to get used, so no point even suggesting it. <laughs> sure. Before we start getting into some of the more granular theory, I did want to talk a little bit about bigger picture stuff. We've already touched on some of this, but we had a question from Diego who asks, how is it that teams still concede so many goals from corners and wide free kicks when they have access to insane statistics and analytics to draw up defences uh, from opponent set runs? So this idea that surely if there's repeatability in, in what you're doing, then you should be able to stop stop those sort of things happening. And I think perhaps it's worth kicking off by talking about the differences. You've already touched on this actually between attacking and defending set pieces because as, as you said, from a defense, talking about corners, most teams are going to defend in a, in a fairly structured way. When it comes to actually attacking, you have a lot more freedom because uh, I think everything the balance of advantage is just wildly tilted in favour of the set-piece taker versus the defending team because you have the advantage of knowing what you're going to do um, and then you can find all of these other advantages so you can control movement, you can manipulate the opposition, you can manipulate timing, um, all of which means that you're doing lots of different things to just throw the opposition off to, to get the, the biggest upside. Um, and so, that, yeah, that's going to give you the, 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 the favour. So how much 
in answering the question for Diego, how much of the development of set piece theory and practice in the last dec decade or so has come down to clubs making the realization that actually when they're taking as attacking set pieces, the advantage is in their hands and they can do all of these different things to actually make it more advantageous for them? Yeah, exactly. And it goes both ways, right? So he said that like a lot of teams will have the insane data and statistics on the, the sort of defense but it also goes the other way and they'll have them their opponent will have them on the offense yeah um so yeah it goes it goes both ways but uh yeah so it uh you often find teams will put more emphasis on the attacking side because ultimately you you want to score um and that's i think that's something an area where the players will respond more to as well um in training like it's very boring standing there as a player in a sort of zonal marking system or however and just defending sort of balls coming in whereas if they're shooting and knowing that this is going to be the routine we're, we're using on Saturday etc then it's a bit more exciting um, so yeah I, I think that plays a part in it as well I'd love to talk about tempo because I think tempo is the thing that I've picked up most from from watching Brentford um, the idea that when you're defending a, a, a set piece, usually the trigger for you to act is the first kick of the ball. So finding different ways of slowing that down for, for different reasons. So one of the things I've noticed is Brentford will often just play a bounce pass from the, the, the taker to another player back to the taker. Obviously that adds a couple of seconds between the actual kick of the ball coming in that changes the tempo that throws off the trigger of the defending team and there's lots of other different things that you can do in in terms of uh, in terms of throwing off teams when it comes to tempo do you think that's become a bigger thing in in recent years yeah for sure yeah um i've definitely seen an an uptake in um teams taking quick short corners as well that's something I, i've noticed a lot recently um just trying to take advantage of before the, the defence can set, really. Um, just try to take advantage of that sort of loose defensive structure and try and get gains that way. Um, something that Hull do quite a lot. Um, they've got some talented dribblers, and so just take advantage of that. Take quick short corners, drive it towards the, the penalty area and see, see what happens. Mm, very interesting. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When it comes to the theory, there's a lot of questions that we received about just the, the sort of standard set piece binaries. So maybe we should run through some of those. So I've got zonal marking versus man marking, um, in swinging versus out swinging, short corners versus long corners. Uh, before we get into that, do you have preferences for any of these from an idealistic perspective? Or is it, are you just generally pragmatic about it? And, and you, you're going to say it depends on the players, the team strategy, etc., what they can get the most out of? So yeah, in terms of man marking versus zonal marking, I've I've done a lot of research in this area and found there's basically no difference. Um, I, I looked at like a couple of seasons of Premier League, I think, and broke down like the different sort of defensive styles and how many corners faced, xG goals conceded, and there was like a, it was like a one percent difference if, if that I think it was I can't even remember which way it was I think zonal marking was better one percent I think um so yeah it's there's no right way of doing it because otherwise everyone would just be doing that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when it comes to zonal and, and and man marking it's worth saying that most teams use hybrid right yeah. presumably no one is doing completely one or the other yeah, especially in the Premier League, yeah, you'll have that. Um, in 
in Italy and Portugal, teams will pretty much defend in some, like quite a lot of teams will defend in almost pretty much a full zonal system. Um, Often with like a a line by the penalty spot of players who aren't man markers, they're they're not really sort of zonal either. They're just basically blockers to stop like the opponent reaching the sort of key target areas. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so it's... Yeah, it's pretty much a 50-50 split. And in terms of the theory behind the zonal, well, these more hybrid approaches, I guess, most of the time in the Premier League, we'll see three or four players on the edge of the six-yard box defending zonally. Um, and then you'll have a, a couple of trackers, you'll have a couple of blockers as well. What's the what's the, the sort of things that you're thinking of when you're seeing the structure of a, of a, of a team's defensive structure? You, what, what, do you th- what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about, well, they've got, this extra player is a zonal player, so that means there's one fewer man marker. You're looking at the way that they're doing the blocking and how they run the blocks, etc. How do you how do you change up these structures to get different uh, advantages? Yeah, ultimately, I look for the space. Um, where where's the biggest amount of space closest to the goal? <laughs> yeah. Um, so some teams defend put their zonal markers like really narrow basically in like a box sort of around the, like the posts and and stuff which leaves a lot of space towards the near corner in the six yard area for a flick or um or just outside the six yard area um you mentioned about in swingers and out swingers and a lot of teams now play out swingers to the sort of deeper zones simply because there's so many zonal markers that it makes winning the ball around the six-yard area quite hard. Mm-hmm. So instead of going for those outswingers, those sort of deeper zones, gives you a better chance of winning the first contact ultimately. Mm. And yeah, so to, let's let's move on then a little bit to talk about in-swinging versus out-swinging. So you mentioned that you can get in-swingers in into the front post is a pretty dangerous way of either generating a chance or getting a flick on. Um, and, and then the out-swinger. I, I think I know a lot of people have talked about out-swingers being... Favored by some, sometimes favored by possession teams because obviously if you if you if no one gets the ball and it's sort of heading back to you and you'll you'll maybe possess it again. What 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 would you say the general theory behind if you want to use in swingers versus if you want to use out swingers and presumably clubs mix it up as well. Yeah, so I always like a mixture um, just to yeah keep the opponent on their toes, but ultimately comes down to players you have at your disposal yeah. as well. Um, like, like most of my answers so far depends <laughs> depends on the team and squad yeah. uh, and the qualities you, you've got available to you as well um, but also the, the sort of uh, defensive setup that you're likely to see um, like like lower down it's where you have sort of less zonal markers uh, sort of like lower down the leagues um, in swingers can sort of really hit those sort of back post areas where there's a sort of lack of zonal cover mm. um, and become much more dangerous in, in those sort of situations. So it's just a case of losing your marker and then hitting it, the space. Exactly, yeah. Um, Why do you think that lower league teams are using man marking more? Is it just because of the simplicity of it? Yeah, although I'm seeing a, a change now, like look, looking at some um, League One and League Two corners this week, there's a lot more teams who have shifted to more zonal oriented systems than uh, seen in previous seasons for mm. sure talking a little bit about the qualities of the, the of the set piece takers being important we had a good question from jake fox who by the way has been doing some fantastic analysis of arsenal set pieces this season so listeners might want to check that out but jake talks about the importance of set piece takers by saying what percentage of set piece routines are devised according to deliverer qualities as opposed to delivery qualities e.g if players have a particularly good deep cross does that matter more than in the heading abilities or preferences of those in the box it has to be a balance um really this is this is going to be a bit of a non-answer but (laughs) yeah it has to be a, a bit of a balance like there's no point suggesting like or trying to play a perfect in swinging cross to the near corner of the six yard area for a flick if you don't have a player that's capable of reliably doing that um so you have to play to the the, the strengths of the squad in both the the recipient of, of the cross and also the player sort of taking the cross so you have to get get that mix um 
yeah, base, basically to, to try and come up with the, the best idea. You've mentioned flicks at the front post quite a bit. Uh, we had a question from Mohammed Mohammed, who's a good good friend of mine, who uh, basically said that's become a bit of a meta recently, right? If you can get the flick on the on the front post, take it to the back post, I guess it changes the it changes the feel of the penalty, right? From a, being a front post penalty to suddenly becoming a back post penalty, and the team then have to adjust, and you can often catch people out. Um, he asks, what what's the best way for for teams to negate that that kind of approach and I, I, I say this having been at the Brighton Arsenal game where Brighton um, sorry Arsenal scored from a front post flick which actually came off the Brighton defender because they were overloading on the front post because Arsenal had done quite a few dangerous uh, front post uh, uh, runs for their set piece routines and suddenly it, it bounces off one of the defenders and goes to the back post where Gabriel Jesus was on mark so presumably it's quite a tricky thing to, to stop which is why it's become the meta in recent seasons right? yeah exactly yeah like if you're if the opponent clears it in that zone, there's a good chance you're going to get at least another corner, right. um, just just because the the direction the, that that player's facing, um, and any sort of contact on an attacking sort of point of view is either a shot or puts it in a very dangerous uh, mm. sort of area, and with a lot of teams defending sort of zonally now. Um, any ball that sort of goes behind that main zonal line mm-hmm. is dangerous. Um, Presumably they step forward as well when the ball's coming into the front post, so that yeah. just compresses them towards the front Absolutely, post as well. Absolutely, yeah. 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 So um, I actually sort of did a massive research project that I sort of looked at the different defensive setups and that sort of near corner flick is the best way of basically creating a goal um, against a, a more sonar oriented uh, system um, so statistics back that up uh, yeah what you, you saw Gianni Fio with Spurs last season also heavily uh, sort of targeting that that sort of zone and mm. um, he's doing it again this season with Watford um, so yeah it's it's meta, but it's meta for a reason. <laughs> so so what's the, what would you say is the best way of trying to stop that from happening? To, to, to stop it, you could you could try to stick a cup of... Yeah, well, it's a double-edged sword, really, because to counter it, you could put better aerial players in that zone. But then by doing so, you're going to weaken another zone. So it's a hard thing to tr- stop because by stopping it, you're going to make yourself weak in other areas. So... It, it's if you want to stop it i'd say how things are at the moment is probably the most sort of beneficial way because it's still a hard area to to try and target like you'll see fans each week complaining that ball hasn't made it over the first man but that's because that's the target area most likely um so yeah so it's a bit yeah risk risk reward basically like yeah if you stop it you're making yourself weaker in other zones but it's also such a hard area to try and actually hit successfully that you might not be better off stopping it if that makes Mm -hmm. sense yeah we should maybe dwell on the the sort of urban myth there which is that you know professional footballers should always be the first man um you've said that's probably because the, the player is actually aiming for that area um how much of that comes down to the fact that when you're playing at the at the highest level as well defenders are so good that you're not going to get upside from floating balls in so you have to try and get whip on the ball anyway which is going to make it a lower trajectory etc is that is that part of the problem i i think so yeah um yeah there, there's a, so much emphasis on the the technique of it that yeah it does make getting that that perfect ball in really really hard uh, ultimately hmm I want to ask you about short and long corners, but before we move away from zonal man marking in particular, we had a question from Tolga, who runs the excellent positional play uh, Twitter account. It's a long question. I'm not going to read it all out, but the, the, the long and short of it is, um, why do we not see more variations in defensive set pieces? Would it not be beneficial for uh, coaches to be able to switch up their defensive uh, approach mid-game? Mid um, he said he talked to a few set-piece coaches before and they said it's, it's mainly to do with limited time working. Um, but he says he doesn't really get it. So what would your answer be to that? Is it, is it some, just simply an ease of, ease of training and also you, you want to pick the battles you want to win and most of them are wanting to win the attacking battles rather than the defensive ones? Yeah, it's always, it's always something I thought that 
improvements could be made as well. Like um, I was working for a team a few years back and uh, most teams would defend sort of hybrid, like with just two zonal markers, one central, one front, uh, one front post. And we had a huge centre-back, massively aerially dominant, like probably the best centre-back in the league aerially. Um, and we just used to play in-swingers to the back post every single game, every single corner, little variation at all. Um, he got six goals and three assists that season <laughs> from centre-back. Um, and it just, it was absurd to me that how are teams still just defending the same way against this from week to week and not like we're going to stick at one of our big centre-backs at the back posts only to try and stop him. Um, but yeah, the the ultimate answer is is training time. Like, get such little time with the players. Um, and ultimately on the day, you don't want to cause confusion um, because, yeah, slight lapse in judgment or someone not being where they're supposed to be ends in a goal. Um, and then then you're up against it. Uh, so that's the, those are the two main things that you you want a bit of stability and ultimately training time. But I fully agree with the point that it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> but yeah, the, those limitations are sadly there, yeah, and that, that you can't really adapt too much. So short corners, long corners, this is another area that I think fans get frustrated by. Um, and there was obviously that clip of Luke Williams, the former Notts County uh, coach who's now at Swansea, talking about why his team, I think they'd taken something like one regulation corner into the box or something like that. Um, what, what's your take on short versus long corners? I think short corners are very misunderstood. Um, I can understand why fans hate them. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of coaches don't like them as well. Um, but I, I do think they are misunderstood. Like there's there's a lot of benefits to them. Um, like going back to sort of zonal marking, um, the sort of main strength of a zonal marking system is that initial sort of positioning of the, the sort of zonal marking setup, that, that sort of barrier around the sort of six yard area um if you take a short corner naturally those defenders are gonna push out which then breaks that sort of initial strength um so if you utilize them right and have a good sort of theory behind it rather than just taking a short corner for short corner's sake um then there's gains to be had um that there's also sort of clever short corner routines to basically get to like the golden zone of chance creation um sort of down the side of the six yard area um that i think a lot of teams don't do that could be hugely beneficial considering their sort of open play sort of philosophy and style of play um and linking to that i, I think Teams who do like possession a lot should play more short corners because those sort of patterns of play and everything else, uh, the sort of chemistry they have with teammates is all embedded anyway. Um, so I think there, there's definitely gains to be had in in taking short corners. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the theory of a short corner is that you end up generating an open play situation with the opposition in a set piece defensive structure right which is exactly, when you yeah. think about that you think well th there would never be any situation where a defend a team would defend open play in this structure <laughs> so there's obviously going to be massive gains there um i wanted to talk a little bit moving on from the, the the high theory then to some of the more general stuff um so we've talked a lot about i think set pieces almost from a point of view where you're looking for marginal gains um and you, you, you have the way that you're doing things and you try and find ways of doing it better. But in prepping for this podcast, I listened to your appearance on the Chris Gill podcast where you said that most of the time you're bring, being brought into work for clubs that actually are struggling with set pieces. So that's a very different scenario, right? That's, that's a scenario where it's like we need to, we need to make big changes quickly in order to um, actually have a, 
not marginal gains, but massive gains in the, in the short term. So Chris McLaughlin asked uh, that he would be keen to hear your thoughts on the biggest, most effective quick wins that you can get from working with a new club in those sorts of scenarios. So what would you do? You come to a, you come to a club and you're looking to actually get them a little bit more solid from, from set-piece situations. What is it that you are going to advise them? Yeah, for, so usually start on the, the offensive side. Um, and it, again, it, it sort of comes down to what qualities do we have in the squad? Um, what's the aerial ability like? What's the delivery like? Usually one of the two is lacking. Um, um, and then it becomes trying to basically mitigate that. So if they've been struggling with the delivery into the, the box, maybe come up with those clever short corner routines instead. Um, if if we lack aerial uh, ability, focus on trying to win, as I mentioned earlier, those sort of balls in space way away from the, the sort of main opposition uh, aerial targets, just just focusing on winning those first contacts and uh, hoping the rest sort of comes around that basically. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of questions about the 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 variables that you can get um, in terms of how good you're going to be as a as a set piece team. So Dave Flanagan had a question about how teams without obvious specialists are going to perform. Uh, with set pieces uh, effectively and particularly the, on the attacking side of things so question he asks is could any team bec- become good at set pieces with the right brains behind them rather than necessarily the right um, personnel behind them and then there's a few other questions in that in those in that vein so Hugh, Hugh Dooley was asking about um, uh, player limitations and how you use those to adapt your set piece routines Evan Klopp asks how important is squad composition to set piece success as in do bigger taller teams always do better and then friend of the podcast Stephen Russell asks how does complexity and plans change with the quality of teams in question as well so if you're playing against if you're a Premier League club playing against a League 2 club would that change the way that you're um, the way that you're setting up for your set piece routine so all of these questions are recognising that changing the conditions be it the players or the opponents is going to change your approach Um, so yeah, sorry, I've thrown a huge amount into that <laughs> into that question, but the, what I want to, us to get to is this idea of variables, how you how you deal with variations in squad composition or or, or opponent strength to actually get the most out of your set pieces. Yeah, so that's 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 a difficult one. Yeah, every every team will have, as you said, completely different sort of qualities and weaknesses. Um, yeah, so ultimately, the the sort of first question, um, I do think. Any team can be good at set pieces. Um, you don't necessarily need to have like, insane levels of delivery or insane amounts of, of sort of aerial ability. Um, I, I think, yeah, as long as the ideas are solid, you, the buy-in from the coaches and the players is there, um, then I think, yeah, that's great start for set piece success. Hmm. Yeah, and then I suppose the other angle to that then is with the Stephen Russell angle, which is how does the opposition change the way that you might approach uh, set pieces? So I guess like we've just had the FA Cup weekend out of the way. There'll be situations where you have higher level teams playing against lower level teams. Would you change your set piece routines to reflect that? Or would you just keep them the same? Yeah, um, I, I think there's there, there's an element of having to adapt. Um I saw, um, uh, so I'm a Watford fan, and I, I saw we we were playing Chesterfield, so National League, and we left two players up top, um, which is the first time we've we've done that all season. I think that was realizing that they're going to have a bit of aerial ability more than we we've got in our squad. So try to mitigate that by putting a couple of their players back. Um, to defend against the, the sort of pacey wingers, etc. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think you have to you have to adapt to the, the opponent. We had a few questions about that. That seems to be a rarity these days. Um, keeping players up the field for, for corners rather than defending with all of them is that something that you're seeing changing more recently? Absolutely, yeah. Like um, I'd say, a majority of teams now defend with everyone back, um, which. Um, a lot of people aren't a lot of fans aren't happy about but ultimately it's 
the the first job is to basically stop this corner ending in a shot or goal um rather than than trying to sort of create a counter attack um so having everyone back is is a sort of element of that um but then on the other hand if you say that well if we're sticking a player up up on the halfway line one of their players is going to have to come out the attack to come defend which makes them weaker in attack so it's <laughs> i can see it both ways yeah, ultimately yeah. um but personally i i like having everyone back to to defend because that is the the primary um focus the other aspect of that is when you're going the other way and you're attacking often teams will leave players deep to defend the counter uh, one of the things i've noticed again at brentford is that sometimes they won't do that they'll push everyone into the box when the kick is taken now obviously a couple of those players will have the defensive responsibility to drop out um, but again it all comes down to the deception that we were talking about before is it makes it much harder for you to decide who you should be marking if you don't know which of the players are actually the attacking players and which ones are, are going to end up by the time the ball arrives in the box actually doing that sitting role as well so is that something that we see a lot of teams doing or is that a, is that a Brentford yeah, specific see, thing? Seeing, seeing a lot of teams especially in the Premier League sort of controlling that, that edge of the, the penalty area with every player now rather than leaving a player back um, Brian do that as well uh, pretty sure Liverpool do that as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely definitely seeing more more teams do that, and um, to to an extent that like um, I remember Gianni Vio a few well pro probably many years ago now in in Italy uh, used to have more players in in the penalty area uh, to to a sort of attack the ball, and then as soon as the kick was taken, one of them would sprint from like the back post to the edge of the penalty area to defend against any sort of transition, but sure. was just there just to Throw them cause up. complete yeah. havoc. <laughs> yeah, and I guess this is you know this is what we're seeing in general across the whole of, of of football, right? Is it how do you make the most of the amount of players that you've got? If you can have a player who is functioning as a, an attacking decoy who can then become a defender, it feels as though you then got eleven players in the box plus extra players who are then dropping out to defend it it just changes the amount of numbers it feels as though you're you're utilizing right? yeah you've as, as you said yeah you've got a very small number of players that you can sort of use and every player is crucial and that's something i always sort of flag in my analysis as well is how active is the goalkeeper uh, sort of um coming to claim the ball because if the goalkeeper basically stays rooted to his line do we want to waste a player blocking him when we know he's not going to be pushing out long distances anyway? Can we use that player as a decoy elsewhere or as a blocker or extra target man, etc.? Um, so that all, all sort of, yeah, factors into it as well. We had a lot of questions about the US element and the influence of US sports on set pieces. Uh, I guess namely that that's the idea of screening or blocking in, 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 in these sorts of set pieces. But it also seemed as though there's an, an element to which in the U, in US sports, and correct me if I'm wrong, you'll, you'll know better than this, no doubt. Uh, it seems as though sometimes these set routes are run almost as exploratory um, set pieces to try and find out what the opposition will do and then respond to them. So we had a couple of questions from Dominic Foley and, and Jan Migirind. I've butchered that name, no doubt, but both of the, these questions, I'm not going to read them out, but both these questions are about using set pieces as decoys to find out what the opposition are doing and then responding to them, which presumably is what happens a lot in US sports. I suspect the answer to this is going to be there's a lot more set routes run in US sports, so you can afford to waste a few just as exploratory, whereas I guess your gut feeling would be we don't know how many set pieces we're getting in a game. Every one of them is worthwhile from a goal-scoring goal point of view. Yeah, I, th I think sometimes there's definitely an element to it where you might have watched a lot of clips and think the opponent is going to react in a certain way but you're not entirely sure so you could maybe run a sort of almost decoy sort of routine just to see just to basically confirm whether you're you're right or not which could then set up the the next uh routine but that's that's not something I I've really noticed a whole lot, but I know it does happen um, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're more definitely more likely to see it in in American sports than than in football. Hmm. And following the American sports 
angle, we did have a question from HP who wanted to know about the role data plays in set-piece analysis following on from that idea that it plays such a prominent role in US sports where they're, where it's much easier to... Because it's a non-continuous... A lot of them are non-continuous sports where you're getting start-start all the time. It's very easy to do the data analysis of them. So what's, what's the role that data analysis plays in what you're doing? So, yeah, I use a variety of uh, different sort of visualizations and uh, stats. Um, so I saw, as I mentioned earlier, I sort of create my own visualizations that sort of provide maps and show who's winning the ball where. Um, there's a new metric that's come in uh, this season that I found really useful as well um, called HOPS. I can't remember what it stands for. <laughs> it's like header on... I can't, no, can't remember. <laughs> um, it's metric on StatsBomb that StatsBomb have bought in. And it's it's pretty much a sort of ELO-like system for headers, pretty much. Um, it stands for the Header-Oriented Performance System. That's the one. There you go. So it basically, traditionally to sort of track an air, player's aerial ability, you'd look at sort of just aerial win rates and sure. stuff like that. Um, but that doesn't often tell a full story because if you're winning 10 headers against Lionel Messi, that's much easier than winning 10 headers against Virgil van Dijk. So this, this metric evaluates every aerial duel a, po a player has had across their whole career, um, but it also measures who each aerial duel was against and so reward them if they're winning aerial duels against harder aerial opponents and vice versa. Um, and that metric has a lot of potential um, in the sort of set piece space um, so that's something I've, I've been using a lot this season that's been performing well and showing showing good good mm. good advantages um, we haven't we, we talked a lot about set pieces we've not really talked about the relationship between set pieces and open play um, so we had a question from Ali, which I think is great because it situates set pieces within the broad, a team's broader tactical approach. So he asked, do, do the actual open play formations and tactics of a team and opposition play a role in set piece design? The formations, not as much. Um, although if, if you're sort of playing, if you're a championship side and you're playing three at the back, etc., and you've got three big centre backs, then that's obviously a good thing from a sort of set piece perspective um but the, the the open play philosophy is definitely something i i keep in mind when sort of providing my analysis and reports to uh teams i'm working with just to to sort of uh i i think you have to have that sort of synergy between the the open play and the the, the sort of set piece design as well um I, I think that's where you get the best results from the players because it's something they're practicing day in day out training anyway alongside the the more separate set piece mm. training i was listening to an episode of the pot shot pod which is an arsenal podcast they had a set piece special uh, which was really interesting and they were talking on that about uh, the fact that it's important for arsenal to uh, have good set pieces because they win a lot of set pieces through their play style as well presumably that kind, kind of thing comes into it as well when you're analyzing exactly yeah 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 all, all links in Look, there's loads of questions I could have asked, and we could we could have carried on going, Stuart. But uh, time time has trudged on to, to the inevitable end of the podcast. I want to end with one final question, which may be a bit more of a fun question. But Dave Olson asked, "What are the biggest collectively held opinions and rep repetitively spoken tropes about set pieces, which the data just doesn't back up?" Now, there's plenty of those out there. I'll, I'll let you pick just one. So, which is your favourite um, urban myth about set pieces that you like to debunk regularly? <sighs> Oh, there's, there's a few. <laughs> um, there's zonal marking is awful. That's a, that's a big one. Um, yeah. But we've that's already the pundit one, isn't we, it? We've yeah. already covered that. Um, I'll go with players on posts. Oh yeah, we've not um, talked about that. Yeah, um, players on posts. Why why don't you stick players on posts? Well, the answer to that is you stick players on posts to basically stop a shot from going in or being goal bound, but that is reactive basically like you're stopping an action that's already happened when ideally you want to stop that action from happening in the first place so by better utilizing those two players you could stop that that shot from happening 
in the first place. Um, and also having players on the post is no guarantee it's going to stop a goal if it comes in that corner anyway. I've seen countless teams have players on posts and it just sail over the player on the post's head and go in anyway. Mm. Um, and also you're sort of stopping, you're basically impeding your own goalkeeper a bit as well. Um, there's a good chance the goalkeeper could save those. Um, so you want to have faith in your, your keeper and not potentially get in his way to scramble into to reach those those chances. Presumably there's a lot of confirmation bias as well, which is whenever a, a ball bobbles in at the front or back post, then the questions will, will arise. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Stuart, it's been a pleasure having you on. It's great uh, having the world of set pieces opened to us in this way. For our listeners, if they want to follow you on Twitter, that's uh, from underscore the underscore wing. Yep. Is there any other ways that people can get in touch with you if they want like yep, to? Yeah, feel free to search me up on LinkedIn. Um, that, those are the two best ways of getting in contact. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. No problem. Thanks for having me.